second to last chapter of 1 Samuel. We'll finish out on Sunday. I love this book. I have loved it. I enjoyed it so much. And it just continues on with 2 Samuel, but you're gonna have to wait on that until I get back from vacation. But I'm here uh, tonight and Sunday morning, and then you're gonna have a, a, a fresh um, moving of the Spirit through Jake and through Les, and I don't even know what's gonna happen while, I, while I'm gone. Honestly, I, I, it's good with me. You'll be good. So uh, we're gonna be, again, 1 Samuel chapter 30. What would you call the most pivotal chapter of David's young adult life? I mean, if you, if you didn't have the chapter before us and, and I wasn't asking you at this time, you might say, well, chapter 16, right? Because that's when we see David's anointing. Well, that's huge. The anointing of David, the, 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 the beginning of that, of that lineage that will ultimately result in the son of David. I mean, wow, that's, that's a big deal, right? Well, what about chapter 17? Killing Goliath, I mean, come on. The courage and the boldness in the Lord and the faith of, of young David to go and do that, that's gotta be the pivotal moment. Well, and then you go all the way into chapter 24 where we see David forgiving Saul of running him down constantly at En Gedi. Of course, then you'd have to factor in chapter 26 where David does it again, as we talked about in that chapter, the seventh time that he's forgiven Saul. So that's, that's gotta be important there on the hill of Hachilah, darkness in the wilderness, the desolate wilderness of Ziv. So what chapter is the most pivotal? And I suggest to you, maybe it's obvious, is chapter 30. That it's where we are tonight. That this is the most important moment. What's about to take place is, I would say, at least the most defining moment of David's young adult life. It's, it's a story of a prodigal coming home, but to a house destroyed. Last we saw David, he was living a lie. We, we looked at chapters 27 and, and 29 last Wednesday night. Uh, he and his 600-man cohort had moved into Philistine land. They're living in Ziklag. They're, they're among the Philistines, away from the Lord's inheritance, Israel, we recognize David has become a desert raider raiding desert raiders. It's a sentence that I really like. Uh, Davis, a commentarian, came up with that. A desert raider raiding desert raiders. That's what he's doing. He's going off and he's raiding these tribes. Now, the tribes he's raiding, you may recall, are all Canaanite, anti-Israelite tribes. So he is kind of working under cover of darkness, he's working, he's maneuvering to fight against Israel's enemies, but then he's coming back and he's telling Achish, the king of Gath, oh no, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm raiding Israelites. Yeah, yeah, we've been out raiding Israelites and here's the spoil from that and we've been raiding Israelite sympathizers like the Kenites, we've been going after them and what he's doing is he's building up this false trust so that he can stay there in Philistine land in Ziklag and it's a dangerous game that he was playing. And again, we saw last week the outcome because foolishly believing that David had defected from Israel to, to the Philistines, King Achish drafts David and his men to join the Philistines and fight against Israel. Now, we know what's going on. We see behind the scenes. So did the other lords of the Philistines. The other kings came and they said to Achish, forget this. What do you think you're doing? How can you trust this guy? And Achish is like, he's been faithful to me. This, I, I find no fault in him. 
And the other kings, they press on him, and they even say, you may recall this, in battle, he may become our adversary. And I suggested to you last week that David indeed was looking like the adversary. Adversary in Hebrew is Satan. Satan is the word adversary in the Hebrew. And so regardless of how we might justify our actions, and no doubt David was justifying his deception of the Philistines as he's going around behind their back quietly making these raids against Israel's enemies, schemes and maneuvers look like the devil. And we fool ourselves when we think we can use deception in service of the Lord. And that's what David's been doing. And he's on the razor's edge. So he goes out to battle. We don't even know what he's thinking, what's on his mind as he follows Achish and the other kings of the Philistines. They say, forget it, send him back. So, so he's off the hook. Whew, wow, that worked out just great. Listen, schemes and maneuvers look like Satan. They do not look like Jesus. And so last week I asked you the question, who do you wanna look like? Because in our behavior, we begin to see who we're patterning our lives after. Romans 8, 29 says, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And I suggest to you that whether we're talking about Philistines or Israelites, whether we're talking about enemies of the Lord or, or, or followers, whether we're talking about unbelievers or believers, that our integrity needs to be intact. That we don't lie and and steal and cheat out in the world, falsely telling ourselves, well, it's for a good cause, that we are in the world as we are in the church, that we are being conformed into the image of Jesus. That word conformed in Romans 8, 29 is sumorphous. Sumorphous, and it means fashioned together with. It means synonymous with. You could use it as, as synonymous with. We're synonymous with Jesus. We're adapted to Jesus. And I'm coming back to that. We have to start right here because spiritual integrity, which right now David is lacking, spiritual integrity is developed with Jesus. It's developed in Jesus. It is not developed by strictly adhering to a moral code. And there are a lot of people in the world who do that. I'm a morally upright person. I have a system of laws and code that I live by and it's good and it makes me a good person. Yes, but it does not conform you to the image of Christ. It can help. Morality certainly can help. Biblical uh, truths can help. But being Christ-like means that Jesus is the shape of our conforming. And the only way that works, in fact, it's impossible to have that kind of transformation apart from Jesus. It has to be by him, it has to be in him, it has to be through him, and not by any other means. And Jesus even took it so far as to say, and I think you know this verse, John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. It is these that testify of me. But you wouldn't come to me so that you may have life, he says. And the Pharisees didn't get it. And religious people miss that fact. Religious people do the church thing. They do the Bible thing. They do the, the moral code thing. They live by the certain standard. And they think, that's it. That will conform me to Christ. Again, those are things that can help. But the only way you will truly be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ is to be in 
Jesus, to be with Jesus. Who said, John 15, five, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do this without me. You can even have every translation of scripture, study it to the hilt, learn all the Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic there is to learn. But apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. So we're talking about, I'm talking about becoming conformed to the image of Jesus. And David is about to come to this place. David is about to realize this, but it's gonna be the hard way. So after last week, of course, he leaves the battle that the Philistines are about to wage against Israel. He's sent back, he and his men, and they head back toward Ziklag, and he gets out of one mess and then finds himself in a whole new mess. Chapter 30, verse one, it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire and they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, interesting it mentions that, and carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Now you need to put yourself in that position. This is not just a Bible story, this is history. How would you feel? If you're among the 600 of David and you are finally relieved, oh good, we're not gonna be caught by this duplicity. By the way, I think his men had to know what was going on, but they all come back together and they see in the distance smoke and fire. And the closer they get, the more they realize it's home. It's home. This was their home, their settlement for 16 months in the land of the Philistines. It may not seem long, but for a guy who had spent the last decade on the run, now David is finally, he has a place that he can kick off his sandals and put up his feet and relax and rest a bit. He has people around him. He's got a growing family. I mean, now he's got at least three wives, but that's another story. He's got you know, a sense of maybe somewhere that he can rest and have peace and it's on fire and they get there and all the wives and children are gone, husbands, Put yourself in that place. Wives, put yourself in the place. You go to the store, you come home, and your house is on fire. And your husband and your children are nowhere to be found. This is a truly horrifying situation, but my friends, it is a direct consequence of David's duplicity. This comes of David lying. We've talked about this so many times, but the Bible says, Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. That's how sin works. Sin wants to find you out. The devil wants to steal, kill, and destroy. I know I keep saying that over and over, but we've got to understand that is the pattern, the consequence of, of sin. Galatians chapter six, verse seven, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What has David been doing? Sowing to the flesh. He's been out on raids. He's been burning and destroying and killing and bringing, and especially killing, and bringing all the spoils back and lying to the Philistines. And again, you, could, you can try and justify it saying, but he was fighting for Israel. And he's deceiving Israel's enemy. Yeah, but he's still deceiving. And he's still killing. And, and in all of this behavior, 
They get drawn out into this battle. They get let off the hook. Whew, wow, got away with it, only to come back and find Ziklag burning to the ground and everybody gone. Galatians 6 verse 9 says, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good, listen to this, to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So the call on us is to do good to one another, certainly in this church fellowship and in the church, one Christian to another. Man, we ought to love each other, do good to each other, care about each other, and maintain integrity in our fellowship. But Paul says, and to all people, Philistine or Israelite, unbeliever or believer, truth and integrity matters regardless where we are. But what Paul is getting at in Galatians chapter six is that flesh cares for flesh. Flesh looks after itself. Flesh will maneuver and play the angles to protect itself. This is what David's been doing. Now, over the last several weeks, uh, I, thanks to the leading of the Lord, we've talked a lot about the spiritual man, the spiritual woman. We've talked about the soulish man, Saul, such a picture of that, the soulish woman. Let's talk a bit about the body and about the flesh. David comes back, he and his guys, to Ziklag. I told you before, Ziklag means winding. And what a name for the life that David has been living for the last decade, winding about from here to there, on the run from Saul. Yes, a lot of that, not his fault, He's an outlaw, not because of anything he did to Saul, but as an outlaw, now he begins winding about the truth and playing and maneuvering the angles. It's a winding road of, of double dealing. And because of this, he and his men ended up following Achish into battle and leaving his family unprotected. All 600 men go with David into battle supposedly against the Israelites. Now, we don't know if in the heat of battle they would have immediately then turned and fought with Israel. I kind of think maybe that's what was playing on his mind. But regardless of that fact, all 600 head off to war with Achish, king of Gath, and Ziklag is left unprotected. Wives, children, nobody there to look after them. By the way, back in verse two, it says that they were carried off without they carried them off, they took them captive without killing anyone, why? Human trafficking, slavery, bondage, misery. And all because David was playing a dangerous game and now it's coming back around. Deceit doesn't just have personal consequences, in fact, the fallout is often on people we care most about. We, we fool ourselves, we deceive ourselves when we think, I can get away with this, I can play this angle, and it's not gonna affect anyone when those closest to us, our own kin, our own families, end up affected by it. And by the way, who's behind this kidnapping? Did you notice that? It's the Amalekites. The Amalekites, let me take you back. They were that same nomadic tribe, that vicious fierce nomadic tribe, the first ones to attack Israel coming out of Egypt, Exodus 17. And the way they were doing it, we're told, is they were picking off the weak ones. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, 
verse 17, it says, remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget to do so. Why do we know about Amalek today? Because they did not blot out the memory of Amalek. They didn't do what they were commanded to do. You may also recall in 1 Samuel that the Lord, through Samuel, commanded Saul, wipe out the Amalekites. He, Samuel comes to Saul and says, it's now time to fulfill that command of God. Wipe out the Amalekites once and for all. 1 Samuel 15, what did Saul do? He left alive those who he thought were valuable. He kept the things that they thought they could use rather than not keeping any of the spoil of that battle. Saul disobeyed. And you might recall this even from Sunday, Samuel's ghost even confirmed the disobedience. 1 Samuel 28, 17, the Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, to David, as you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek. So the Lord has done this thing to you today. Now some have struggled with the whole wipe out the Amalekite thing. Why such a fierce wrath? Because aside from, if you can set it aside, their vicious depravity, and this was a sick and depraved and, and hard-hearted and mean group of nomads. You did not wanna mess with the Amalekites. And we know this from documents even beyond biblical scripture. We know this from history. This was a nasty bunch of dudes. And more than perhaps anyone else in the Bible, we've said this before, but note this, Amalek is a picture of the lust of the flesh. Amalek portrays this. The Lord will refer to Amalek for such a thing. Attacking, note this, they come out of Egypt. We always talked about Egypt before as a picture of the world. So as Israel comes out from Egypt, even as you, new believer, comes out of the world, guess what happens? Amalek attacks. Immediately, lust of the flesh. Well, I did this before, and I really enjoyed it. It can't be so bad now. Even though I'm following Jesus, maybe I'll just do a little of this. And Amalek attacks as you come out of the world. Assaults us when we lag or straggle, or when we're weary or following, falling behind. How often, think about this in, in your Christian life, have you just been weary, and then, you know, I'm just gonna use church attendance as a picture, it's not the highest value, but, but you stop going because, man, I just got too much going on, and you find yourself weary, and you find yourself sinking into the lust of the flesh, and next thing you know, you're under attack in your weariness, in your weakness. The lust of the flesh, it exploits us when we are vulnerable, when we're faint, when we're weary, when we've just had it, that's when it strikes. That's Amalek, and that's the body. And this is, and I'm gonna give you a couple of things to jot down, three or four. Number one, this is the weakness of the flesh. The weakness of the flesh. Looking at this historical picture here, but making the application, the Amalekites attack when? When the strong Fighters are away when the people are left unprotected and David's own deceit is now coming back around to haunt his family and his friends. 
the weakness of the flesh. James chapter one, verse 14 says, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. That's an ugly baby. <laughs> and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. By the way, that's a really good understanding of why God said wipe out Canaanites. Because big Canaanites made little Canaanites who would become big Canaanites and who would be as depraved as their parents were before them. And so sin, when it is accomplished, brings forth death. And then James 1.16 says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Lust conceives sin, which lures and attacks the weakness of the flesh. The flesh we've talked about, the body, spirit, soul, body. It's not that the body is, is a bad thing. God gave us physical bodies, gave us physical form, but the body's weak. The body is easily lured, easily drawn into sin, easily exploited. The flesh is sinful because it's so weak and so easily swayed and so easily pressured to do sin. And we know this, but we still fall prey. Usually, because we're weary. What does the Bible say? Let us not weary of doing good. But we do get weary sometimes. You know, life hits us from all the wrong directions and we start to feel like, man, you know, David got anointed. David followed the Lord. David's a spiritual man, but he spent 10 years running. Come on, Lord, how long do I have to do that? Ah, oh, at least we have Ziklag now. And it's in weariness that, that sin begins to take over. Uh, in Romans chapter eight, which again is, I think, the key chapter in talking about spirit, soul, and body. Romans chapter eight, verse five says, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. That's the end game, that's the result. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It does not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Note that order, by the way. Romans chapter eight, verse seven. The mind on the flesh is hostile toward God. So beginning with hostile toward the very person of God. And because of that, then is hostile toward the law of God won't subject itself to it. It's not able to, and therefore cannot please God. But it all starts with rejecting God himself. And that's, again, the flesh. And someone may ask, well, why, then, why did God create us in flesh if flesh is such a problem, if flesh is so weak? Hey, don't forget, he also created you spirit and soul. Spirit, soul, and body. Why did he do it this way? Ultimately, to reveal the glory of his grace to all who come to him. That's the deal. It, it, there is something so much bigger. Ephesians chapter three, you can dig into this, tells us there's some, something so much bigger going on here with the grace of God. He is not only teaching us and teaching the world of humanity, he is teaching the principalities and the rulers and the heavenly beings. He is explaining and teaching even the angels what grace looks like. And so in his Profound wisdom, God created a spirit, soul, and body, and he calls to us via spirit. But the body's there, and the question is, will the body be subjected to the soul listening to the spirit, or are we gonna flip it the other way around? 
If we flip it, the flesh is weak and lust gives birth to sin, brings forth death. And we see David caught now in this situation because he's been on the run and he's been relying on his flesh. He's been relying on the strength of his flesh and on his soul to figure out a way around these things and to consider and to continue this deceit. Verse four then says, watch this. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Have you ever done that? You'll weep yourself to sleep. You just weep yourself weary. Of course they do. Wives, children, taken. Their home burned. Settlement of the last 16 months burned to a crisp. This is an awful moment in David's life. And so they just weep themselves weary, but spiritually speaking, it is bad enough that lust and sin attack us when we're spiritually absent or spiritually weak. But then lust and sin weakens us all the more with sorrow, with shame, with guilt, with blame. And it even ultimately causes us to start turning on each other. Verse five, now David's two wives have been taken captive, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the, the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and daughters. This now loyal band of brothers are talking of stoning David. So not only have they all lost everything, David himself has lost everything, but his loyal compadres want to kill him and blame him and take him down. This is what the lust of the flesh does. It's not satisfied with, with, you know, knocking the wind out of us. It wants to take us down to death. And so we see this playing out in a very real way. And by the way, I, I said this a moment ago, but it's interesting to me, they wanna kill their captain. Yeah, are you telling me that no one among the 600 knew what was really going on? That they didn't know what David was up to as they're going out on these raids, as they're lying to the Philistines, as they're living in Philistine territory? Come on. They knew what was happening. You can blame the captain all you want, but they were complicit in what was happening. And now they want to take his life. Now they want to stone David. And you know what? If we could personify sin, we would hear it cackling in the corner when we turn on each other. When our own sin or someone else's or the fallout causes us to start throwing blame at one another, we would hear sin laughing. I know the devil snickers in the dark. What fun <laughs> to attack their weaknesses and then weaken them all the more and then watch them turn on each other and kill each other for it. It's all just an ugly sin game that the devil plays. The son of David understands the weakness of the flesh so well. I don't think anyone understands it better than Jesus. He warned Peter and the sons of Zebedee that night in the garden, saying, Matthew 26, 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that's David's problem. And that's what's led to this horrifying situation. Victory over the flesh must be spiritual. 
It's the only way you can combat the flesh. It's the only way that you can win out. It must be spiritual. Jesus says, praying and watching, watching and praying, because the flesh itself is so weak. And because apart from me, Jesus had just said that same night, apart from me, you can't do nothing. By the way, let me just give you a piece of good news about the body. Part of the promise of eternity is you get a new one. <laughs> and we often think of that in terms of the aches and the pains and, you know, and the limitations of the flesh. But no, no, you get transformed. You get an eternal, glorified, transformed flesh which is no longer going to be lured by sin which is now a new man, a new woman, a transformed body. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50, I say this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, the dead, the necros, the bodies, the corpses, Note that, we'll be raised imperishable and we will be changed. You think your body's in bad shape now? Give it five years in the grave. <laughs> and it's gonna be altered and glorified and changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Paul says, for this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. And when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And Paul says the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we think about, oh, the new body, the new body, I can't wait to run and dance and fly maybe. <laughs> walk through walls. I mean, I got all kinds of things I'm thinking about using this new body for, sneaking up on people. Hey, how's it going? Wah! Freaking people out. But what does a new body mean in terms of the spirit? It means we're gonna be finally and truly set free from this weakness. No more weakness of the flesh. You will be glorified. But for now, we still in these bodies. And Amalek keeps coming back again and again and again. Amalek keeps looking for opportune times. Sin and the lust of the flesh keeps coming around to attack us in our weakness. So until we get our glorified bodies, well, the Bible says, Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Don't leave the door open. Don't go off fighting with the enemy and leave yourself or your home or your family vulnerable. By the way, that's such a, such a great word to fathers, to household leaders in our culture. Don't go off to conquer the world and leave the family vulnerable. That's what David did, and look at the outcome. Well, this is great, listen up, because even in our weakest times, even when our closest allies are done with us, like David's friend saying, stone him, there is, number two, the strength of the Lord. The strength of the Lord. Verse six, at the end of the verse, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That's it. 
I told you before, the high watermark of, of the book of 1 Samuel, uh, of the love of God is seen in the forgiveness of David for Saul, chapters 24 and repeated in chapter 26. That forgiveness is the highest mark of love. But the high watermark of David's spiritual journey is right there. David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. First time he's done it since chapter 25. The prodigal's home. Even as the prodigal's city and, and house is burned to the ground, the prodigal's back home. This is the turning point in David's life, in David's maturity, perhaps his greatest realization by revelation. And by the way, my flesh is just burning up, so let's take care of that right now. This, he, he realizes where he has to go. He's, he's Peter. To whom else can we go? He strengthened himself in the Lord, not in another friend, not in a co-commander, not in a buddy who was standing on his side while everybody else wanted to stone him. David is alone in this moment. David has lost everything, and he strengthens himself in the Lord. And you can too. And that's what's so beautiful to me about that one sentence. And by the way, I would encourage you, highlight it, underline it, put little stars around it, circle it. This is an amazing moment and an important moment in the scriptures because of what it teaches you and me. Let me ask you, and don't answer this out loud, think about this for a moment. How do you strengthen yourself in the Lord? How do you go about it? Now, now we can make a list. Perhaps we should. Prayer, right? That's a good one. Worship, excellent. Bible study. Um, how about fellowship? Man, just go to church. You want to strengthen yourself in the Lord? Go to church. Well, I've been to that church. Then go to another one. So many ways we could come up with these ways. We, we can look back on his faithfulness. Oh, Psalm 77 is a great one. If you're really struggling, like the psalmist who couldn't sleep all night long and finally says, I will appeal to the deeds of the Lord. I'll look back to the parting of the Red Sea and him bringing them through the wilderness. I will remember those things. So we can look back and strengthen ourselves in the Lord. We can look ahead to the promises of God, what's coming. And I'm sure there's more that we could add to this list. And these are all good things, but listen to me. They're still the mechanics. They're the mechanics of the issue. I, I really had to spend some time thinking about it. I'm not even sure I came to it until this morning. How do we strengthen ourselves in the Lord? The key word of verse six is not strengthen. There are two key words, one key word and a key, and a key two words then. The key word is in, in. David strengthened himself in the Lord. David didn't have a Bible. I doubt he broke into worship and praise in that moment. Well, he must have been praying. Now hold on, hold that thought. David strengthened himself in the Lord, and then the last two words, his God. In his God. In his God. Alexander McLaren, the Scottish uh, pastor, prolific uh, Bible student, wrote, though David could no longer say, my house, my city, my possessions, even my family, he could yet say, my God. Whatever else we lose, as long as we have him, we are rich. God is enough 
whatever else may go. So think about this. When I say, how do you strengthen yourself in the Lord? Psalm 42, verse five, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Psalm 42, verse 11, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Or Psalm 56, verse three, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. And I shall not be afraid. It's how Paul could say, 2 Corinthians 12, 10, I am well content with weaknesses. By the way, that verse is not up there, so add it into your little list. 2 Corinthians 12, 10, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. How are you strong, Paul? In the Lord, in him. Nothing has changed in David's circumstance. Do you recognize that? When it says he strengthened himself in the Lord, the city's still burning, still smoldering. His wife's not back. His kids are nowhere to be found. The enemy has them captive. Everyone still wants to stone him. Nothing has changed, but in this moment, David strengthens himself in the Lord, and while nothing has changed externally, internally a change comes over him as he realizes the strength of the only one to whom he can turn. So I wanna challenge you to think about there are all kinds of things that we do. I use the word mechanics. There are mechanics of our faith. We can worship, and yes, we should. We can study the scriptures and memorize and read the Bible. We can show up at church. We can pray. There are things we can do, but the issue is not the things we're doing. The issue is the Lord. And we strengthen ourselves in the Lord, in him. Have you ever just done this when you're having a bad day, just said, oh, Jesus, and all of a sudden you start feeling better? You haven't even said anything else yet. Oh, Jesus. I, just, I love the name. Oh, God. I haven't asked for anything. I haven't changed anything. Nothing's better than it was 10 microseconds ago. Oh, Father. And immediately, it's better. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. Hold that thought and keep going. Verse seven, then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, remember Ahimelech was killed at Nobay with the other 85 priests. But Ahi, uh, um, Abiathar got away, came to David. David says now to Abiathar, who is now the acting high priest, please bring me the ephod. Guess what? Abiathar brought the ephod with him the ephod, the breastpiece of the high priest. Get me the ephod, bring me the ephod, he says, please. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. David inquired of the Lord. Now he's praying. Now he's, he's asking, saying, shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, pursue, for you will surely overtake them and you will surely rescue all. Listen, he strengthened himself in the Lord first. Then he inquired of the Lord. I am making a distinction here, and I believe the Bible does, between being in the Lord and praying to the Lord. Just calling the name of Jesus. Just resting yourself in the presence of a holy God. Just waiting on him because you know he loves you. 
and then entering into prayer. Strengthen the Lord first, and then inquiry here in David's story. Before we ask, before we petition, seek him. How often are you asking before you've even got to our Father who art in heaven? You know what I call that? You Seinfeld fans, it's Kramer prayer. Kramer prayer, what do you mean, Rick? I mean, if you've ever seen Seinfeld, Kramer's the one who comes flying in the door halfway through a sentence before, you know, it's like nothing else is going on but what he's doing. I know this very well because, and I, I adore her, but this is what my mother-in-law has done for years. We have a door that, that separates. There's a, a side of the house that belongs to my in-laws and, and then we're on our side of the house and we share this together, pray for me. But, um, <laughs> no, and I love, we've been, this is, how many years have we been? 16, 17 years with them. So it's worked. No one's killed anyone yet. <laughs> See, I said, you heard the yet. No, it's great, but, Oh, man, for years, it would be so funny. Cheryl and I would be sitting at the counter in our kitchen, and we're having conversation, talking about some real serious, you know, maybe a child issue or, or a family thing, and the door flies open, and she's halfway through a sentence. I don't know. What are you? What, just, no, no, it's okay. What do you need? What we're doing? And, and we do prayer like that sometimes. Sharon, I love you. I think she's watching right now, so she's probably one. Door flies open, there she is, and that's how so often we pray. The door flies open and we're asking for stuff and we haven't even stopped long enough to go, hey, Jesus, so good to be with you. I mean, just to pause for a moment. That's why when Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer, think about the structure. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Has he asked for anything? No. He's just said, Father, you're holy. You start with the presence. You start with the person. You, go, you wouldn't do that to a friend. Yeah, what's up? Hey, listen, I got all kinds of stuff going on, so I only have a minute. Let me ask you some questions here. I mean, can you take care of my car? Because I got to go over to, you know. And, I mean, who does that to your friend? Don't you normally start out with, hey, how you doing? It's, well, sometimes, I guess maybe there are those times where we go, listen, I just need you to do this. And God is so gracious that we, even though we start making inquiry before we even acknowledge his presence, he's hearing us. He is so good that way. But I'm talking about our hearts, and I'm talking about how do you strengthen yourself in the Lord when you're feeling so weak? Stop asking for stuff. At first, strengthen yourself in the Lord first, and then make inquiry. He invites, he welcomes our prayers and our petitions, but just seek him because it's him. Just speak the name of Jesus because he loves you and you love him. And recognize, like the Hebrew pastor wrote, Hebrews 4.14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. So let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin which is good news. He knows what it feels like to be tested, but he didn't cave to that. Oh, good, so I can count on him. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Not so that we may offer our laundry list of things that have to get done. He doesn't say that. He says so we may receive mercy and grace. When we all get to heaven, 
I, I, I crack up. I told you before, it cracks me up when people go, I got a list of questions for God. You are going to be mouth shut when you get there. You're not going to be asking anything. You're not going to be asking. You're going to be basking. <laughs> and we can do that right now. And I think that this is key to strengthen our strengthening ourselves in the Lord. Just, just be with him. Give, him. give him room. Give him space in your heart. Acknowledge him. And maybe then begin to worship him and praise him and, 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 and speak of his goodness and thank him for all that he's done. And, and, then, and then make inquiry. David strengthened himself with the Lord and then he makes inquiry. And then the third thing he does, and we're talking now about the strength of the Lord in him, now he obeys Strengthen, inquire, obey. Verse nine, so David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Betsor, where those left behind remained. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor remained behind. This is so interesting in this story. Besor means cheerful, by the way. They've come to the brook cheerful. <laughs> And I'm probably reading into it, but you know what? I think David's already feeling better because he strengthened himself in the Lord and now he's inquired of the Lord. The Lord answered and said, yeah, you're gonna, yes, go get them and yes, you're gonna rescue them. So now all David needs is faith, you know, to trust that God said we're gonna rescue them. Let's go get them. Let me ask a question. How in the world did they know what direction to go? Ziklag is the southern area of Philistine country next to the Negev, the Judean desert. Where are you gonna go? Now, maybe there were some good hunters among his 600 men and they kind of picked up a trail and, and headed that way, but you know what? It is very hard to hunt down nomads who know how to move about the desert quickly. Go get them. Okay. <laughs> Let's try that way. And so they end up at this, at this brook, the brook Besor, the cheerful brook. My friends, do not be grieved. Nehemiah chapter eight, verse 10 tells us, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so David does this. He strengthens himself in the Lord. He inquires then of the Lord. He hears from the Lord. And now he obeys the Lord so what's going on? Now he's running on the promises of God. He's got a bunch of men who are too weary even to go on from this brook. David's ready to go on, why? Because he has a promise of rescue. He knows it's going to work out. Remember the promises of God? We talked about the promises of God last week. Many promises made in scriptures that have yet to come to pass and though the rescue has not yet occurred, I think David's heart is cheered by the very promise of rescue from the Lord. He's trusting the Lord. He's back in alignment with the Lord because he strengthened himself in the Lord. I can't say that too much tonight. But something happens here at the brook of cheerfulness that could be really discouraging. Think about it this way, an entire third of his band of brothers can't go on. That's hard. 200 out of 600 tell him, I can't, I, I can't keep this up. 
Remember, they had gone all the way up with the Philistines. They came all the way back. They'd been completely worn out by their weeping and, and weariness, and now they're running out. And there are 200 guys who just, they can't do it. They just can't go. But David, having strengthened himself in the Lord, is undaunted. Okay, you guys stay here. Off we go. 400 go with him. You know what? I think David could have gone with Gideon's army of 300 and been fine. I think David could have gone on if it was just him by faith because the Lord said, you're gonna rescue them. Verse 11. Now they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he ate and they provided him water to drink and they gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins and he ate, and then his spirit revived. I, just, I love the specificity of the scriptures. You know, it's telling us what was on the menu, you know? And he eats all these things, a couple of fig newtons, a couple of boxes of raisins. His spirit revives. He had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. So this guy is, is pretty much, he's left behind. He's worn out. He's not doing well. Well, they feed him, they care for him. Then David said to him, to whom do you belong? And where are you from? I mean, this is unusual to find an Egyptian wandering alone in this desert region. And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. David's ear, no doubt, perks up. And my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago, and we made a raid on the Negev of the Keratites and on that which belongs to Judah and on the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Oh, you were one of those? Kill him. Kill him. Stab him. Someone give me a sword. You're done, and we're gonna take out everyone else. You know what's amazing? David, having strengthened himself in the Lord, inquired of the Lord, walking and running now in obedience to the Lord, is wise. He, he, he's thoughtful in this situation. There is a change that we see working its way through David, through his spirit man, that is now leading to wisdom. David recognizes with this little Egyptian, remember I told you, we're out in the middle of the desert. Nomads are notoriously difficult to locate. So here in the desert, suddenly, they find someone connected, and David realizes this could be helpful. <laughs> Hand of providence, I think, is at work. God is showing them the way. Well, verse 15, then David said to him, will you bring me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will bring you down to this band. This guy's been dumped. You know what, this, this little Egyptian is like a lot of people in the world who have been dumped by sin and lust and the flesh. And here he is, just please don't hand me back. Promise me you won't do that. And, and David's going to do that and I, you know, is there a picture here of what we do with the sinner, with the person who is just spent by the world? We see David and his men care for him and feed him and get this information, and, and now they're gonna swear to him not to, not to give him back to the hands of his master? I love the story. And when he had brought him down, behold, they, that is the Amalekites, were spread all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. That's so stupid. Why are they doing this? Why aren't they hiding out? Because they think that all the Philistines, including those of Ziklag, are off fighting the Israelites. They got nothing to worry about. 
So now they're down there and they're just hanging out going, this is great. We got all these slaves to sell. We've got all this spoil to enjoy. Verse 17, David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. (laughs) David's a man of war. Don't ever forget, you know when you're reading the Psalms, don't forget, he's a man of war. This is a fighter. He is a warrior. He has so much blood on his hands, and, and, and not all of it innocent blood, but there is some But he has so much blood on his hands that when it comes time to build the temple of the Lord and he draws up plans and he's so excited about it, the Lord goes, nope, a warrior will not build my temple. And it would have to be his son Shlomo. (laughs) Peace. Peace will build the temple of the Lord. But in this case, David slaughters every single one of them. Why? Why such a slaughter? Because as a military fighter, David knows if he doesn't slaughter them now, they're gonna come back. And my wife and my children and my friends and, my, and all these families at Ziklag are at, in danger until this gets wiped out. Now, it's brutal, and we don't like to think of it in terms of you know, modern times, although when we go to war, what are we doing? But putting down the enemy so that they will not attack again. And that's all David is doing here. They can bother you, but you know what? There's a bigger picture here. David knows they're gonna come back. He knows the Amalekite threat to his loved ones would remain. Let me just suggest that we need to slaughter sin. We don't leave sin alive to come back another day. Leave nothing to return. Romans 8, 13, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We need to somehow mature to the point where we realize sin is not worth allowing to live. And we make no provision for the flesh. Kill it dead. Verse 18. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives exactly as the Lord had promised. Verse 19. But nothing of theirs was missing, whether great or small, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves, which means if they stole a loaf of bread, they still had it. And David brought it all back. Verse 20, so David had captured all the sheep and the cattle, which the people drove ahead of the other livestock, and they said, this is David's spoil. David's spoil. What is David's spoil? Listen, it's more than simply the recovery of what was lost. David's spoil here, there's a picture of something more than simply, it's not just the wives and the kids and the things that that had been taken out of Ziklag, it's more, it's everything that the Amalekites had. So it's much more than what they lost, now they are gaining in David's spoil. Prophetically speaking, there is a spoil promised to David's people. Joel chapter two, verse 23, rejoice, O sons of Zion. Be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And then I will make up to you for the years the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. 
You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And then my people will never be put to shame. This is a future prophecy for Israel. He says, thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am Yahweh your God. There is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. And it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Well, wait a minute. Hadn't that started to happen 2,000 years ago? Isn't that a prophecy of Pentecost? Yes, in part. Peter grabs hold of this prophecy and says, this is what you're seeing. This is what's going on as, as all the apostles were there and they began to praise and worship the Lord in, in tongues that everybody understood. And in that moment, Peter said, hey, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. <laughs> this kills me. That just kills me. He's such a fisherman. <laughs> we're not drunk. It's only nine. <laughs> you know? But he says, no, no, this is what was prophesied of Joel. And he declares this, and I'm not disagreeing with Peter. It was what was prophesied of Joel, but there's more to that prophecy. And we've seen this so many times in the Hebrew scriptures. There's a double edge to prophecy where we see partial fulfillment, but then we see full fulfillment. Well, why would you say that? Because he says very clearly, and then my people will never be put to shame. And Israel has continued for 2,000 years to be put to shame by the world and the anti-Semitic rhetoric that continues to this day. But a day is coming when the vats will overflow and the, the hills will drip sweet wine and the country will be gorgeous and the people of Israel will be at rest and they will know peace and all that has been taken from them will be restored. This is David's spoil. David's spoil. It's more than what was lost. More than what was lost is recovered. You can put it this way, Israel's spoil is blessing beyond salvation. Isn't that ours? Number three, the spoils of salvation. The weakness of the flesh, the strength of the Lord, and now the spoils of salvation. Isaiah 53, another prophecy declares this, as a result of the anguish of his soul, that is Messiah, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, Jesus, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The spoil of David is a promise to Israel. What is this spoil of Messiah? It's you. It's, it's you in terms of our salvation, and it's me, and it's so much more. Jesus didn't just rescue us from sin and the flesh. That'd be enough. My salvation, that would be plenty. He didn't just give you salvation. He has given us, Ephesians 1, 3, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. That's Messiah's spoil the son of David's spoil. 1 Corinthians 1.30, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It doesn't stop with salvation. The spoils of salvation are great. They just continue the blessings of God. It's like salvation kicks the doors open 
to the blessings which make truly rich in the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, for goodness sakes, if it was me, I'd be like, they're saved. Shut up, sit down, you're saved. Enough already, not with the Lord. This is what John calls grace upon grace. I have the grace of salvation, eternity with Jesus, and he just keeps blessing. And I think, I think he blesses most, not those who deserve it, but those who recognize it. There is something to thanksgiving and something to the very recognition, I'm not just saved, I'm not just sanctified, I am blessed beyond measure. And the Father wants that for you, he wants that for me. But what if you're among those who don't have the strength to fight? 400 did, you know, in David's story. They went on with David. They, they had a great, a mighty victory. Everything, David's spoil. But what if you're among the 200? What about those guys? The Bible says, 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you, were made, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul says, Timothy, fight on, keep fighting. And Timothy fought that fight and continued to pastor his church. But there had to be someone sitting in his church there in Ephesus who was just barely there. I'm not fighting any fight of the faith. I believe in Jesus, but man, I, it's all I can do just to show up just to be here at the brook cheerful. <laughs> you know, and put on a happy face and show up on a Sunday morning. That's all I can do. What if, instead of the 400 staying in the fight, you happen to be among the 200 who are in weariness when Jesus comes? What about that? Verse 21. When David came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David, who had also been left at the brook Besor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. Then David approached the people and greeted them. This is so godly, so Christ-like. But then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except to every man his wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. And then David said, oh, you must not do so, my brothers. Listen to the courage in his voice. This is a man who was being threatened of a stoning just before this. And he turns to these 400, and there are a bunch of worthless idiots in this group who still had a few things to learn. And he turns to them and says, you must not do so with what the Lord has given us who has kept us and delivered into our hand the band that came against us, and who will listen to you in this matter? By the way, the beginning of verse 24 is, is like, who's gonna listen to this? In other words, you know how ridiculous you sound? And he continues and says, for as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage, they shall share alike. So it has been from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. If you go fight, you get spoils. And if you stay home, you get spoils. If you're among the people of God, you get the spoils. This is, if you wanna jot this down, fourth and final note, the generosity of grace. And I love this picture, and this is why I, you know, this is why we see strength that shapes the heart. David is being altered before our very eyes. 
We're seeing a man who is functioning 100% in the spirit here. As he moves through this chapter, it's just, it's amazing and exciting to watch how generous suddenly he is. It is so easy to be among those who fight the good fight and put down those who are weary. I'm here every day of the week. You know, I had a situation, I was talking to Jake about this, I think on Tuesday. I had a situation years ago where someone who was volunteering and helping things happen on a, a Sundays and Wednesdays in the barn, someone said, you know, I, I, I just need to step back. And I remember walking home that night in my sinful mind thinking, I don't have that luxury. I'll be here Sunday morning and next Wednesday, and man, the Lord dealt with me on that. He really did. It's like, oh, you don't want to do this? No, no, it's okay, 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 okay. You have a problem with this, you know? But this is so typical, and we see this sadly in churches where those who are putting out everything and they're fighting the good fight and they're, man, they're doing it all, and they look at the others and go, I don't even know if they're gonna be raptured, to tell you the truth, because I got something to show for all my labor, right? And you're just sitting there, you know, in, in the, I, I was gonna say like the fourth row, but then fourth row people always go, How many of you have been weary of the fight and had to just sit and receive for a while in your life? Okay, my hand's up because I, that's me, you know? I'm about to take vacation, you know why? Because I need it. But we, we, have this, we have this wrong mentality. Listen, again, David's perspective is so Christ-centered. He says, you must not do so with what the Lord has given us. Do you realize nothing that we have here tonight was earned? Our salvation is by grace. Our sanctification is by grace. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is by grace. You and I have not earned any of it. If we got what we had earned, we'd be in big trouble. The thinking, the striking difference between the hearts of these wicked and worthless men and, and the heart of David it's the difference of the attitude of works versus the attitude of grace. That's what we see here. Works-based people actually believe they've earned something here. And so they're gonna tout that rescue as something won or something earned, and when others come along who aren't doing anything from their perspective, they denigrate them, which you didn't even enter the fight. You weren't even at church the last six months before the rapture. What are you doing here? <laughs> that is workspace mentality. We did not earn the spoils. We did not earn the salvation. We could be 92, 93 years old, 98. Like Uncle Bill asked Les and Donna the story, 98 years old and he gave his life to Jesus. That's not fair. Now, I'm just gonna speak for Lesson Donna here. I'm gonna speak for a foolish Lesson Donna. This is not the real Lesson Donna. This is the fool Lesson Donna speaking, going, you know what? I served in ministry for decades. And this lame comes along at 98, says, oh, I believe in Jesus, and he gets to be saved. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew <laughs> chapter 20. 
Matthew chapter 20, seriously, go there. And as you're going there, remember, everything we have, as David says, is what the Lord has given us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And you may have been on the front lines, and you may have been fierce in battle for the Lord, but you know what? The person who is weary is just as loved by Jesus as you are. And if you're out there fighting that fight, you are fighting for that person. And you are fighting for others who haven't even accepted Jesus yet. Matthew chapter 20, listen, the more you know grace, (laughs) the more gracious you will become. And the more conformed to the image of Jesus. Matthew chapter 20, I love this parable. Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven, it's like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. And again, he went about the sixth and then the ninth hour and he did the same thing. And about the 11th hour, this is where we get that phrase, the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing around and he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said, because no one hired us. And he said, you go into the vineyard too. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last to the first. So the the most recently hired start with them. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Hey, I mean, those guys got, this ought to be good. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day? But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? (laughs) Or is your eye envious because I am generous? And so the last shall be first and the first last. And what the first often forget is they are saved. In fact, what the first often forget is they have been enjoying Lesson Donna, this is not foolish Lesson Donna now, this is real Lesson Donna, have been enjoying the fruits and the spiritual blessings of Jesus their entire lives. Uncle Bill missed out on that. But, but, he's got salvation. He passed away, was it last week? This morning. And he's with Jesus because he gave his life to the Lord. He didn't work for it. He didn't earn it. He's a good man. Everything that that Les shared with us this morning, good, good, good man. But he wasn't a believer until the 11th hour. And he's home. And that's how it works. And if you have a problem with that, you need to talk to the landowner. (laughs) Because everything that we have belongs to him. That is the generosity of grace. And there are gonna be some who barely alive in the faith some who squandered their entire lives to the enemy, and they show up at the last minute. There is that guy out there, I've told you, there's that guy out there who's gonna be the last one to believe in Jesus, and then we're all gonna get caught up. 
And I could imagine in the flesh that we'd all gather around him and go, what took you so long? We were waiting and waiting. We won't do that. A, we're gonna be enamored with Jesus and B, thrilled that we got to be part of what he was doing, which is the whole issue. I mean, isn't that the point of our ministry to others is to see people saved? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.15, and I find this humorous, he says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. That is, he did all this stuff all his life, but none of it was eternal. None of it was of lasting value. None of it mattered, and it will be burned up. But he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. What? Because he believed. Because he gave his life to Jesus. He may have done nothing. He may have never gone to the fight. He might not even have made it to the brook Besor. But, but he believed. And there are gonna be those in the rapture who are caught up that are gonna show up and they're gonna have hot pants having barely escaped. And they're gonna be there and we get to cheer them on by the grace of God that the Lord has given us. That is the generosity of grace. Well, verse 26, back in our story. Now, when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah. (laughs) He's not done giving. This is great. He sends spoil out to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, behold, a gift for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord to those who are in Bethel and those who are in Ramot of the Negev and those who were in Yatir and those who were in Aroer and those who are in Sigmot and those who are in Eshtemoa. I know you're keeping track of it. You know where all these places are. And to those who are in Rachal and those who are in the cities of the Yeramelites, those who are in the cities of the Kenites and to those who are in Hormah, Bor Ashan, Atak, Hebron and all the places, note this, where David himself and his men were accustomed to go. This is just such great generosity. It's just flowing from David, the spiritual man. We see such a change in him. This is a glorious change. By the way, all these areas listed here between verses 27 and 31 are in southern Judah. They're all in that south region right there near the the desert region, the Negev. And these were also places that David and his men would hang out. These were their haunts. And the people of these cities knew that and were, they weren't turning David and his men in when they'd show up and go to a diner, you know, at one of these locations. So the people there were familiar with David and, and he must recognize they've put themselves at risk for me. So I'm gonna share this with them. There's plenty of spoil to go around and he is, begins to, that, and these were also, by the way, likely subjects of the Amalekite raids. So maybe he's also blessing them, paying back some of their losses. It's fair, it's just generosity, but last thing to note here, it's also very shrewd. Very, very shrewd on David's part. This guy could have written the original copy of How to Win Friends and Influence People because he's influencing people. Guess where he's first gonna be anointed king? Hebron. They will line up behind David first. All of these cities, this location in southern Judah, are gonna have David's back before all the rest of Israel. This is incredibly shrewd on his part. You know what? You might read that and go, oh no, David's slipping back into the soul man. No, the spiritual man, the spiritual woman, don't check their brains at the door. You're not called to be spiritual and kind of (laughs) dumb. We are called to be wise Behold, I send you out, Jesus says, as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. 
there is a shrewdness, an intellect, a, a wise use, a, a spiritual wisdom used by the soul man as we follow the Lord. And it doesn't discount faith and it doesn't discount kindness or spiritual innocence. Especially when, like David, you know the strength of the Lord. You have strengthened yourself in the Lord. You know your salvation. You know the spoils of all the spiritual blessings. And so because of that, all you wanna do is share. You wanna share the Lord. Last thing to note, everything that happens in this story, everything that takes place, you can dial back to verse six, the last line. David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. It all comes from there. His inquiry, his obedience, his wisdom, his victory, his generous impartiality, his shrewd gifting, it all flows from the same fountainhead. David strengthened himself in the Lord. May you be strengthened in the Lord. And in that strength, may you be so generous with the gospel of Jesus Christ and generous with the spoils of our salvation. Hey, they don't belong to us. They were given to us by the Lord. So let's give that away, amen? amen? Father, thank you so much for your word, and I just pray tonight, if, if, if nothing else was heard, I pray that my brothers and my sisters, like myself, that we have strengthened ourselves in the Lord, that we have found what we came needing tonight, and that was simply you, Lord Jesus. We see throughout this history, this story of David's life, we see such such a marvelous work, Father, your hand upon your son of his, of his return to, to the spirituality that you see in him, this man after your own heart. Well, that's us, Lord. And we can, we can be so faithful one day and so prodigal the next. And so, Lord Jesus, draw us back to you. Help us to continue to seek and find our strength in you, in your presence, in who you are, and may everything else flow from that. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.